You are listening to TGTM News number 70, recorded for Wednesday, June 27, 2012. You are listening to the Tech Only Hacker Public Radio Edition. To get the full podcast, including political commentary and other controversial topics, please visit www.talkgeektome.us. Here are the vile statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in DeepGeek, TalkGeek to me. Hey, it's DeepGeek. I'll be on sabbatical month of July. Uh, this is the uh, second one-month installment of sabbaticals for the year. Got several projects planned. Enhancements to the webpage, as you remember, I redesigned it. Attending the Hope the Hackers on Planet Earth conference, 13th through 15th of July, in downtown Manhattan. If you're going to be an attendee, I would love to break bread with you. Drop me an email and we'll arrange that. I just might try to take the unscheduled slot and get a what I'm going to call the, a darknet get-together. I'm considering doing this because I'm one of the things I have I want to do with the sabbatical besides th- this conference and a family vacation is experiment with darknet cryptographic network software, you know, subnets within the Internet. If you're interested in such stuff, send me an email. Uh, maybe we can fool around with it together. Otherwise, if you're going to be at the Hope Conference, and if I do manage to put something together, maybe you'll see me at the unscheduled track. That, yeah, that about wraps it up. Here's to uh, the end of the... Uh, Sabbatical, you know, it's going to get a lot done. But it's nice. This, this system seems to be working for me. Uh, I couldn't have redesigned the web page and experimented and with the uh, and updated the web servers without one month sabbatical. And this is going to be it for the year. After that, I come back in August, resuming the newscast schedule with full force, strength, and vigor. It's an exciting thing. Okay, thanks for listening. And now, the tech roundup from. EFF.org, dated June 22, 2012, by Rebecca Bow. Global Telecom Governance Debated at European Parliament Workshop. In recent weeks, the corner of the blogosphere that concerns itself with Internet-related policy has come alive with posts, comments, and op-eds addressing the theory that a little-known United Nations Telecom Agency, the International Telecommunication Union, the ITU, is gearing up for an Internet power grab. Concerns about this possibility spurred the U.S. Congressional hearing last month and across the Atlantic, a June 19th workshop hosted at the European Parliament in Brussels provided a forum to sort out, quote, challenges to the Internet governance regime, unquote, as they relate to the ITU. The U.N. agency, which is made up of 193 member states and specializes in information communication technologies, is in the midst of preparing for a December conference where it will renegotiate an important treaty establishing the International Telecommunications Regulations, the ITRs. These regulations lay the ground rules for how big telecoms interact with one another in an international context, setting up systems for things like revenue sharing, 
and have historically only dealt with telephony and never reached into the realm of Internet architecture. At Tuesday's workshop, representatives from the European Commission, civil society organizations, Google, and other organizations were on hand to share their insights about how this treaty revision may affect Internet governance. William Drake, an international fellow of the University of Zurich, and expert on Internet policy, challenged the framework that has been debated so far. Quote, It isn't in fact the case that the UN will send in black helicopters to take over the Internet, end of quote, he assured participants. Waving a slim green booklet totaling fewer than 30 pages, he declared, This is what all the fuss is about. It was the latest compilation of the ITRs, the telecom rules that ITU member states last agreed upon in 1988, long before mobile devices with Internet connectivity revolutionized the telecommunications industry. William Drake said he thought some discussion around the revisions could be discounted because they seemed driven by various political agendas. He was nevertheless very clear that he viewed certain proposals as highly problematic since they would indeed result in a restrictive effect on the Internet if approved. To read the rest of this article, follow links in the show notes. From EFF.org, day of June 21, 2012, by Jillian York, Can Apple Refuse to Sell a Laptop to an Iranian Citizen? Maybe. No iPod for you. The sentiment may have evoked the fictional soup Nazi, but the salesperson was completely serious. After hearing 19-year-old Saha Sabet speaking in Persian with her uncle, an Apple Store employee refused to sell Sabet an iPad, stating, according to Sabet, quote, I just can't sell it to you. Our countries have bad relations. While the Apple employee was wrong here, in other, not too different circumstances, that employee may have been right. Restrictions placed upon U.S. persons by the Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, state, block quote, in general, a person may not export from the U.S. any goods, technology, or services if that person knows or has reason to know such items are intended specifically for supply, transshipment, or re-exportation to Iran. Further, such exportation is prohibited if the exporter knows or has reason to know the U.S. items are intended specifically for use in the production of, for commingling with, or for incorporation into goods, technology, or services to be directly or indirectly supplied, transshipped, or re-exported exclusively or predominantly to Iran or the government of Iran. And block quote. Balsabet told a reporter that she had mentioned nothing about traveling back to Iran. Companies, fearing the high penalties placed upon violations of the OFAC regulations, often restrict sales or services on the fear that an Iranian citizen could take the products to Iran. For example, Google reportedly blocks Persian language advertisements because of the prohibition on financial transactions targeting Iranians. Given that there are only small pockets of Persian speakers outside of Iran, it would be difficult for Google to argue they're not targeting Iranians with ads in Persian. Therefore, blocking the advertisements entirely ensures that they're in compliance with the regulations. In this case, however, Apple was wrong. 
a statement Wednesday by Department of State spokesperson Victoria Newland in response to the incident clarified that there is no U.S. policy or law that prohibits Apple or any other company from selling products in the United States to anybody who is intending to use the product in the United States, including somebody of Iranian descent or an Iranian citizen or any of that stuff. If you do want to take high technology goods to Iran, you need a license, but that is a separate issue. A statement was also issued on the U.S. virtual embassy to Iran's Facebook page. Given that exports to Iran are strictly controlled, where does the U.S. government draw the line? Not at the borders, one might expect. A rule of the Department of Commerce, both Commerce and Treasury, are involved in export controls, dubbed the Deemed Export Rule, states that the Department's Bureau of Industry and Security, the BIS, has jurisdiction for the export or release of controlled technology and software to a foreign national in the United States. A BIS policy document on Iran clarifies, however, that the deemed export rule does not apply to persons who are permanent residents in the United States or are protected individuals under the Immigration or Naturalization Act. So, what does this mean for Iranians and other individuals from sanctioned countries? Basically, an Iranian student temporarily residing in the U.S. with intent to go back to Iran may legitimately be denied purchase of an Apple product under export regulations, but a U.S. permanent resident or someone with Iranian dual citizenship cannot be. Furthermore, a company or individual that wishes to export to Iran must apply for a license through the Department of Treasury's OFAC. Additionally, it is unlawful for anyone traveling to Iran to bring controlled items such as laptops, or satellite cell phones into Iran even temporarily without authorization from OFAC. To read the rest of this article, follow links in the show notes. From torrentfreak.com by Ernesto, dated June 14, 2012, U.S. government equates mega upload to bank robbers. Two weeks ago, Mega Upload's lawyers filed a motion to dismiss the criminal case on the basis that the company was never properly served. This issue was previously acknowledged by Judge O'Grady, who had doubts that the case would ever go to trial due to this procedural matter. However, the government believes that the case should continue. In a response filed today, U.S. Attorney Neil McBride argues that the notion that a non-U.S. company can't be served should be rejected by the court. This line of reasoning leads to incredible conclusion that foreign corporations can commit crimes in the United States without risk of being brought to justice here. McBride writes, adding that it would be unprecedented to dismiss the case at this time. According to the government, the federal rules shouldn't be interpreted so narrowly. A company should only be served on the U.S. address if they have one, it is argued. The provision shall be interpreted to require mailing a copy of the summons to the organization's address or to its principal place of business in the United States only where such an address or place of business exists. Moving to the money side, the U.S. asks the court to reject Mega Upload's request to return seized funds so these can be used to aid the company's defense. Previously, the company pointed out that the government's argument that all revenue the site ever made came from infringements is flawed. However, the U.S. stands by this assertion and tells the court that returning Mega Upload's assets is no different from handing back stolen money to a bank robber. 
The government's interest in forfeiture is virtually indistinguishable from its interest in returning to a bank the proceeds of a bank robbery, and a forfeiture defendant's claim of right to use such assets to hire an attorney instead of having them returned to their rightful owners is no more persuasive than a bank robber's similar claim, McBride writes. In addition to the above, the government points out that Mega Upload's motions should be rejected because the court hasn't yet decided whether defense lawyer Andrew Shapiro of Quinn, Emanuel, Ergerhart, and Sullivan is subject to conflicts of interest. Shapiro's law firm previously defended media companies that may be called in as witnesses in this case. Attorney General McBride concludes by asking the court to strike Mega Upload's requests. It is now up to Judge O'Grady to come to a decision on the various issues that were raised. It's clear that the mega upload case is heating up even before getting into the factual allegations of the indictment. While it's too early to conclude anything, the above suggests that the government is uneasy with the strength of mega upload's defense. From torrentfreak.com, dated June 12, 2012, by Ernesto, Comcast protests shakedown of alleged BitTorrent pirates. United States citizens who download and share copyright files through BitTorrent risk being monitored and in some cases subject to legal action. In recent years, more than a quarter million alleged BitTorrent users have been sued in federal courts. Most of the lawsuits are initiated by adult entertainment companies, but mainstream movie studios and book publisher John Wiley & Sons have also joined in. These copyright holders request a subpoena from the court to order ISPs to identify alleged BitTorrent users through an IP address. They then contact the account holder with a request to settle the case in return for a sum of money. Initially, Comcast complied with these subpoenas, but an ongoing battle in the Illinois District Court shows that the company changed its tune recently. Instead of handing over subscriber info, Comcast asked the court to quash the subpoenas. Among other things, the ISP argued that the court doesn't have jurisdiction over all defendants because many don't live in the district in which they are being sued. The company also argues that the copyright holders have no grounds to join this many defendants to one lawsuit. The real kicker, however, comes from the third argument here. Comcast accuses the copyright holders of a copyright shakedown, exploiting the court to coerce defendants into paying settlements. Plaintiffs should not be allowed to profit from unfair litigation tactics, whereby they use the offices of the court as an inexpensive means to gain Joe defendants' personal information and coerce settlements from them, Comcast lawyers write. It is evident that these cases, and the multitude of cases filed by plaintiffs and other pornographers represented by their counsel, that plaintiffs have no interest in actually litigating their claims against the Doe defendants, but simply seek to use the court and its subpoena powers to obtain sufficient information to shake down the Doe defendants. Comcast cites several previous cases to back up their claims, and points out that federal rules require courts to deny discovery to protect a party or person from annoyance, embarrassment, oppression, or undue burden or expense. The attorney for adult publisher AF Holdings is furious at Comcast's refusal to comply. He asks the court to disregard the ISP's arguments entirely and accuses Comcast of denying copyright holders the opportunity to protect their works. Comcast delay in objecting 
to the plaintiff's subpoenas is part of a wider campaign to deny and delay the plaintiff's and other similar copyright holders' ability to protect their copyrighted works. Comcast routinely objects to subpoenas issued to it by producers of adult content, AF Holdings writes. The article concludes with the paragraph, and if you want to read the small amount of material in between, you may follow links in the show notes. Whatever the outcome, Comcast protest is part of a growing trend in which Internet providers object to handing over subscriber data in mass BitTorrent cases. Previously, Verizon did the same, successfully arguing that it has an obligation to protect the privacy of its customers. Lastly, from TorrentFreak.com, by Ernesto, dated June 16, 2012, Kim.com theory on corporate cyber lockout use supported by survey. After the shutdown of Mega Upload, Hollywood was quick to point its finger at other rogue sites, such as U.S.-based cloud storage service Mediafire. The irony is that while the movie companies claim these sites are destroying their business, a majority of corporate employees depend on them. This widespread, legitimate use also applied to Mega Upload. Founder Kim.com told us last year that movie industry insiders and employees at the world's top corporations were all using the service. Among our 180 million users is a large number of celebrities, musicians, filmmakers, actors, etc., and they love Mega. We have hundreds of premium accounts from employees of the companies the RAAA and MPAA represent. In fact, 87% of the Fortune 500 companies have premium accounts with us, .com said. While the numbers above say little about the legitimacy of the files being shared by these users, a new survey reveals that it is common for employees today to use file-sharing sites, e.g. cyber lockers, to share and store work-related documents. The survey, conducted by Skydocs, polled the use of free file-sharing sites among 4,119 workers at companies in the U.S. and U.K., two-thirds of the employees admitting to using free file-sharing sites for work. Among these sharers, 45% said their ID departments are aware of their usage of these services. A breakdown of the result in different work sectors shows that file-sharing services are most used among employees in professional services, 87%, closely followed by financial services, 84%, Healthcare, 57%, the creative sectors, 55%, and government employees, 54%, score below average. The above doesn't only emphasize the huge legitimate potential of cyber lockers. The widespread use of these services in the work setting also sheds a new light on the ongoing fight of mega upload users to get their files back. This week, the EFF argued in court that the U.S. government disadvantaged many former mega-upload users by shutting the site down without warning. By seizing the servers, they deprived millions of users access to their files. The EFF is supported by retired Judge Abraham David Sofaher, who is very critical of the government's actions. It's really quite outrageous, frankly, Sofaher told Threat Level in an interview this week. I was thinking the government had learned to be discreet in its conduct in the digital world. This is a perfect example on how they are failing to apply traditional standards in the new context. Ignorance might play a role here. 
Judging from previous criminal investigations, the U.S. government is relying heavily on how the copyright holders portray certain websites. It wouldn't be a surprise if the investigators were simply unaware of the many legitimate users, including thousands of government workers. Other headlines in the news. To read these stories, follow links in the show notes. Internet Threat to Press Freedom How Long Before VPNs Become Illegal News from MaggieMcNeil.wordpress.com and AllGov.com used under arranged permission. News from TorrentFreak.com and EFF.org used under permission of the Creative Commons by Attribution License. News from DemocracyNow.org used under permission of the Creative Commons by Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. News from PacificFreePress.com used under permission of the Creative Commons by Attribution Non-Commercial License. News sources retain their respective copyrights. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is dgtgtm, as in DeepGeek. Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work as well as allowing you to modify the work so long as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.